0: Did you know 90% of top performers have a high emotional intelligence and a higher than average annual income? As one of the most highly valued skill sets, Emotional Intelligence, or EI, is what distinguishes outstanding leaders. Deepen your EI skills today with the Daniel Goleman Emotional Intelligence course. A 12-week online course to develop your inner capacity. Become a stellar leader and build high-performance teams. Save your seat and $50 with the coupon code PODCAST. Learn more at courses.keystepmedia.com. That's courses.keystepmedia.com. Don't forget to enter coupon code PODCAST at checkout for $50 off your registration.
1: What is money, and what do you use it for? Uh, You use it for buying stuff. How does money work? How do people make money? By doing, like, lemonade stands and doing work and stuff. Have you ever made a dollar? Yes. What did you do to earn the dollar?
0: Maybe a lemonade stand.
1: Did you make a lot of money on your lemonade
0: stand? Yes. I think $10.
1: What did you do with the money after you made it?
0: The first time I splitted it with my friend and the second time, um, I think I kept it.
1: What is the first feeling you have when you walk into your favorite store? Uh, Excited. What's one of your favorite kind of stores? Stuffy store. Stuffy store? Yeah. (laughs) So do you get excited to buy a stuffy? Yes. What does it feel like to be able to get what you want in the store?
2: good.
1: And what does it feel like when you don't get when you want? Sad. Yeah. Welcome to First Person Plural, EI and beyond. I'm Elizabeth Solomon, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Daniel Goldman and Hanuman Goldman. Hi, Dan. Hi, Hanuman.
3: Hello, oh, hi, Liz.
0: What's up, y'all? Nice to see you.
1: As always, First Person Plural looks at three levels, the theory, the systems, and the personal experience of navigating that topic. Today, we're launching into a three-episode series on the topic of reinventing capitalism. And we're kicking things off with a conversation with Harvard Business School professor Rebecca Henderson, author of Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. Before we launch into Dan's conversation with Rebecca Henderson, I'm curious, Dan and Hanuman, to get your take on why today's system of capitalism might not be working.
3: There's several ways I think in which capitalism blatantly is not working for everybody. It's working for some, for the super rich who are getting richer and richer, but the gap between rich and poor has been growing inexorably, and it's getting bigger and bigger. Uh, workers' wages have been stagnating while People who own things, the capitalists, if you will, uh, are getting richer and richer. And meanwhile, a side effect of our economy, of business as usual, of the things we make, buy, and use every day is that the world is on fire, as Rebecca Henderson points out. Global warming can be tracked directly to uh, to the consequences of capitalism as it is now.
0: When I think about capitalism, I think about greed. It feels like our society has collectively decided, or at least the decision makers have collectively decided, that greed unchecked is a positive quality. And I believe that it is needs to be a collective decision uh, to put some reins on it, to put some guide rails on greed. Um, because if the system's set up right now so that like you're saying, Dan, all of the wealth can be sucked up by just a few people. And that isn't tenable. It's not sustainable. It, it actually isn't good for them either, in my opinion, when the entire rest of the society is uh, left without then we're all off balance and nobody is really winning. Even if a multi-billionaire feels like they're doing great, everywhere they go, they have to be protected. They have to be guarded from the rest of society because of the inequality. I'm not anti-capitalist. And as far as my understanding of capitalism goes, I am, uh, I'm just for understanding greed. And uh, collectively making a conscious decision that maybe greed alone isn't the best uh, driver for the systems that we have.
3: Greed corrupts every economic system. Look at communism and the oligarchs. I I remember the Dalai Lama being outraged at corruption, especially in the third world where you'd have billionaires in impoverished countries. Something's not right there.
0: I think you're exactly right. It doesn't matter the system that we're in, but rather. Yeah. It's human just, nature. Yeah, well, it's it's human nature, but human nature is made up of other elements too. It's not just greed. And and there's also the caring for ourselves and caring for yeah. others. And, and that's what I mean by greed alone is a driver because uh, exactly. I, I think we just have to balance it out with some uh, caring for each other, humanity or seeing Uh, the humanity and
3: others. I think compassion is the great antidote to greed. Yeah.
1: There's a couple of things that I hear in what you're saying, Hanuman. And um, one is um, a perspective that many religions and traditions um, take, which is that we are all connected, right? And to live in a world where one person is suffering inevitably means that all of us are suffering And I'm also thinking about our episode on happiness that we did this season, uh, looking at this kind of false belief that money or material objects are what bring us happiness, right? And that we know scientifically that that's just not true. Thinking about income disparity, just to illuminate this point, this is kind of a depressing fact I just read, but I was looking at a report from Oxfam. And they were analyzing how much money um, female workers make in Thailand um, who process shrimp, right? All of the shrimp that comes to the United States and goes into the grocery stores. And in 2018, it would have taken one of those women workers about 4,000 years to earn what the typical CEO of an American supermarket chain earns. And now in 2020, Dan, to your point, that income disparity has grown, and now that number has gone up to 5,700 years to meet the earnings of a CEO of a typical supermarket in the United States. So just to point out how great the um, income disparity is when we're working in the confines of capitalism.
3: I think that uh, people who are caught up in the present capitalist system don't really think of themselves as greedy. Uh, They see themselves perhaps as uh, working in their own interest. Uh, What's been missing in the organization of capitalism, I think, is the idea that a rising tide lifts all boats. Uh, There's the rhetoric that this is true, that people will uh, get wealthier. And in countries like China, for example, where a, a huge number of people have been lifted from abject poverty to maybe a middle-class status. This has been true. On the other hand, the income disparity that results, I I think is unfortunate and needs to be looked at. I really admire Rebecca Henderson, who after all teaches at Harvard Business School for taking a, a clear, cold look at the system as it is now and how it might be readjusted in order to work better for everyone.
0: Well, I'm excited to hear what Rebecca Henderson has to say about how we might reimagine capitalism. Let's jump in.
3: First of all, Rebecca Henderson, I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast. It's very kind of you.
2: It's my pleasure. I'm honored and delighted to have been asked. Thank you very much.
3: Rebecca Henderson is a university professor at Harvard, and her course on reimagining capitalism uh, became one of the most popular courses, I'm pleased to say, at Harvard Business School. Rebecca Henderson has a new book by that same name Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. And that's what I'm eager to talk about today. And uh, Rebecca, Uh, has eminent qualifications to rethink capitalism, having been a consultant for many years and being on board of directors of several corporations. Um, But having come to the realization that advising companies on how to make ever more money seemed beside the point. Can you tell us about how you came to that realization and where it's led you?
2: It happened about 15 years ago. Yeah. My brother, who is a freelance environmental journalist, sent me some of the science to read in uh, with respect to global warming. So I found myself reading scientific papers about what was happening to the world. And my first thought was, well, I should just quit. You know, <laughs> that uh, oiling the wheels of corporate capitalism is, uh, is not going to do anyone any good. And uh, and I should become an activist. I, I seriously considered becoming an activist for, I would guess,
3: about six months. Luckily, you didn't, because I think you, 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 you're thinking is quite strategic. And first of all, could you share with us your analysis of why capitalism doesn't seem to be working so well for us now?
2: I believe capitalism is out of balance.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I'm a huge fan of free markets. I think that um, They've helped create incredible prosperity. They drive innovation. I think using competition as a way to allocate resources is a brilliant idea. And I think we can see it around us every day, right? If you think of the speed with which we got a COVID vaccine, um, that's partly due to the old fashioned competitive juice of capitalism, but markets only, only do their best when they have guardrails. And the most obvious guardrail we're missing right now is any price or penalty for burning fossil fuels and emitting greenhouse gases. So right now it's entirely legal for me to take an enormous quantity of coal, burn it right up, generate huge quantities of emissions, and that's that's fine. In fact, that might be a fantastic way to maximize profits. But when I burn that coal, I'm imposing very real harm, both on people who are alive right now in terms of the health costs of burning coal, because when you burn a lump of coal, it sends up pollutants like mercury and lead and particulates into the air. And in the U.S. alone, that's as much as five or six percent of GDP in health costs. I mean, this is very, very real harm. But I'm also storing up harm for future generations in the form of climate change. And I don't have to pay for either of those. And uh, that means the market is fundamentally mispricing. I mean, the economist in me wants to get just a tiny bit technical and say that, you know, free markets maximize social welfare when everyone can play, when there are lots of public goods, and when everything is priced at its real cost. But in the case of of the planet, for example, we're not pricing it. We're not pricing the damage that we're causing. Um, And so to me, it feels as if our world is radically out of balance. And, And I picked up the environmental example because that's the easiest to talk about. But I think the same thing has happened to us socially, that we've taken the health of our societies for granted. And we've said to firms, you know, well, if you want to push down wages to the very bottom, if you want to exclude a certain nationalities or ethnicities from your workforce, you know, up to a point, we don't really care. Um, and now, of course, there are some laws, but mostly we've told firms low cost, low cost, low cost. And that has come with enormous costs to the whole society as well as to the planet.
3: What you're saying, as I hear you, is that uh, companies have been actually encouraged to ignore environmental and social good, that maximizing shareholder value, which at one time might have made sense, as you say, is dangerously mistaken.
2: Well, for sure. I mean, if you can throw your garbage out the window for free, why not? Anyone who pays to have their garbage taken away looks like a sucker. So without the kind of right rules and regulations in place, we've created a radically uneven playing field in which the people who want to you know, be bottom feeders, uh, want to just drive things to the lowest common denominator are those that are gonna make the most money. And so um, that's one of the reasons we're in the mess we're in right now.
3: I'm always puzzled by this notion of externalities, which I think is an accountant's term. Uh, I I, do, I wonder, where did it come from? What does it do? Why is that a uh, get-out-of-jail-free card for harming the environment or harming the social good?
2: Well, I think externalities is actually a very useful word because what it points to are unanticipated side effects from an activity. Uh, think about when the first cars were introduced Everyone thought they were amazing, right? You can go from here to there. You don't have to feed the Mm. horse. When it rains, there's something to keep you dry. I mean, the car was incredible. Now it generated certain side effects, noise, pollution, parking, pushes the horses off the roads. Um, But those effects were not integral to the design of the product. So we call them externalities because we sort of didn't really mean to do them. And I think as well, because it's super hard to measure. And so into this category of externalities goes all those unanticipated side effects. And sometimes they're okay. Sometimes my neighbor has a wild party and you know there's tons of noise, but that's okay because you know, it only happens once every six months. It's when the externalities are really large and when they continue for very long periods of time that they become a huge problem. And the good news is we know how to fix them. In principle, we absolutely know how to fix them. And that is to make the people who generate the externalities pay for doing so. So in the case when you burn coal, the $10 worth of coal fired electricity um, generates about $8 worth of harm to human health and about another $8 worth of climate damage. Those are conservative estimates. So the real cost of $10 of coal-fired electricity is not $10, but something more like 26. Well, imagine if you priced it at $26, that would make things like solar and wind look super cheap because they're already nearly the same price as coal in many parts of the world. In fact, they're cheaper. But if we priced the damage that coal is doing, we would get rid of it very, very quickly. And so we have this word, externality, because it's how economists have talked about making sure that someone somewhere takes care of them in the end. At least that was the original hope.
3: Uh, It seems though, that, as you're saying, they've gotten out of control, particularly in terms of the environment and social impacts. Let me ask you about a different word, transparency. Transparency for investors is absolutely crucial. You need to have full access to the real costs and uh, profit of a company and so on to invest. It seems to me we have zero transparency about the effects you're talking about, uh, the environmental and social impacts of a product or of a service.
2: So this, I think, is one of the great revolutions we're in the middle of. Um, I sometimes say that I used to think accountants were dull, but now I realize that they are the pioneers in in our new civilization. Why? Because they are trying to measure these so-called externalities or unanticipated effects. So um, there's a lot of energy and effort going into so-called ESG metrics environmental, social, and governance metrics. And the idea is that these metrics are material. That is, if you were an investor or an employee or a customer, they're large enough that you'd really like to know about them, that they should be auditable. That is, people should be able to to really know when a firm reports something against one of these metrics that that's really the case. And they should be replicable. That is, you should be able to compare firms across the same set of metrics. Now, we're still at the very early stages of this. I think real attention has and real energy has only been going into this area for maybe two, three, four years. Mm-hmm. But we're already seeing some really exciting results. Uh, my friend, George Seraphim, who's a, also a professor at the business school, runs a research initiative called the impact weighted accounts initiative and uh, what they're trying to do there is really develop a concrete measure in financial terms of the damage or the good that a firm is doing that isn't captured in the financials and the numbers damn the numbers are huge I mean they're finding that you know as many as a third of the firm's publicly traded firms may be causing more damage than their entire profit stream which is like huge when you think about it that way. So those are metrics largely for investors. But then you have many, many people trying to generate metrics for consumers so that when you buy a product, you know if it's sustainably grown. You know if the people in the supply chain were paid a living wage and worked in decent conditions. The issue there, of course, is again, how do you make it replicable and auditable? And there's a plethora, I mean, I've lost track of the number of different standards there are. I don't know about you, but when I go to the store and I pick Hmm. up a product, I'm like Rainforest Alliance, it's kosher, I mean, there's all these different signs and seals, so one of the things we need is to bring some coherence and standardization to the consumer-oriented metrics as well.
3: I would love a day when, as a consumer, I could pick up a product and know, just as I find out the cost, how it compares to competitive products on ESG metrics in a simple, you know, rating system, three-star, two-star, one-star, whatever. Uh, I think that would uh, unleash a power of the free market that hasn't been touched. Going to investors is one thing. Going to consumers is another, particularly as younger consumers come online. What do you think?
2: So... I'm torn. I mean, part of me really agrees with you. And the good news is I don't think it's a long way away. Um, I must have heard this last year from perhaps 15 small startups that are trying to produce exactly what you want. So you just scan the barcode with with your phone and it gives you that kind of comparative data. So I'm pretty sure we're going to have it fairly soon. The place I'm less sanguine is I'm not sure how much difference it's going to make. Here's the thing. We know, at least right now, that in, for most products in most industries, consumers are not willing to pay more for the so-called better choice. I mean, some of the early work in this area, for example, found that consumers wouldn't pay literally a cent more for line-caught tuna, rather than tuna that was caught in enormous nets that killed all kinds of other fish as, as they fished for it. And in general, that's what the current research suggests. There are some consumers and some products where people will pay more for the the right thing. Um, Organic food, people will pay more. Um, Professors in Cambridge, females of a certain age and a certain political persuasion, they will pay more. But most people won't or can't. They will switch their buying behavior. So we do see that when consumers become convinced that one product is better than another, while they won't pay more, they will buy that product preferentially. So to the degree that we can get the price of sustainable products down to be comparable with with their direct competitors, then people will switch. But so far, and and I really hope you're right, and so many Mm. people think maybe we're on the edge of a real shift and consumers will really drive things. But right now, investors are paying more attention than consumers. It's quite striking.
3: The um, title of your book, In a World on Fire, I think is very telling with regard to this very point, because the world is on fire and will become increasingly hotter if we continue as we have. And my prediction, and it's only a prediction, is that younger people, I have grandchildren who are three and five. Mm -hmm. Over the course of their lifetime, unfortunately, the trend lines are that the world will become uninhabitable if we continue as we have, which may change the proportion of people who care, who will make the right choice. This is my theory. Oh, for sure. We may never know, you nor I.
2: For sure. And that's why I think a part of me waits almost every day for consumers to wake up and understand what's happening. And I think as we see more floods, more fires, more droughts, the odds that people will say, you know, I won't buy anything produced with fossil fuels, you know, that it will become absolutely verboten. I don't, I only buy clean, you are helping to destroy the planet. I think it's quite possible we could see a really rapid shift in sentiment, mass boycotts of firms that aren't making the move. And indeed, my best sign that this is happening is how many firms are trying to change their spots. Already. Already. Because their employees are telling them, this is not okay you have to switch. I've lost track of the number of firms that are promising to be fossil fuel free by 2050 or 2040, but it's an increasing number. Um, I work with many, many firms that have set very ambitious goals to completely get Uh, the fossil fuels out of their supply chain and put renewable uh, energy in in its place. And they're doing it both because their employees insist and they think consumers might pay more, but mostly because they're afraid if they don't, I think, that the whole society may switch and say, look, this is not okay. We're going to put massive regulation on you, massive prices, you have to switch.
3: I wonder if you can turn that around into a positive strategic argument which would be, you know, the smart thing to do would be the first mover in your sector.
2: Oh, that's what I spend most of my time saying when I'm talking to to executives. I say, look, I spent the first 20 years of my life studying large organizations trying to change. And I can tell you that you are much the better off if you move first, if you anticipate what's happening. We're in the beginning of a fundamental transformation of our society. We're going to see nearly every sector from transportation to agriculture, to real estate, uh, to food, just really transforming. And, uh, And you want to be out in front of that. I mean, it's People often point to it, but let me do it too. Look at Mr. Musk at Tesla. He had a dream. He was willing to put his fortune behind his dream. He's an eccentric man in many ways, but I would argue that he's accelerated the shift to electric vehicles by about five years and made himself extremely rich, even richer in the process. I mean, Tesla is now, I believe, the most valuable car company on the planet.
3: You have... um outlined five steps that would help us change capitalism for the better. Can you tell us about each of them?
2: There are five steps to reimagining capitalism. We need to create shared value in purpose-driven companies that, yes, make money, but are focused on a larger goal. We need to rewire the capital markets to support these kinds of firms and to support step four which is cooperating, learning to cooperate within regions, nations, and industries in support of the common good. And last but not least, we need to rebuild our institutions to support the development of inclusive institutions whenever and wherever we can. I suggest that firms can create shared value. What does that mean? That means that they can address a major public problem and make money at the same time. Elon Musk at Tesla is an example. So is uh, Impossible Foods, which is a company devoted to replacing animal protein Mm -hmm. with plant protein. Uh, They've been able to raise enormous quantities of money because everyone can see we're going to need to make that switch and their product tastes delicious. (laughs) Um, Another example would be Walmart that announced over 15 years ago now that they were going to reduce their energy use and has found that they've saved literally billions of dollars by just using energy more carefully and conserving it um, and switching to renewables as well. But but they put a billion dollars to their bottom line by re-engineering their trucking fleet. So that's shared value. It's looking at what's happening in the world and saying, I can solve these massive social and environmental problems and make money at the same time. I mean, one of the things I'm most excited about are those firms that are adopting what I call high road business models. That is, that have decided to treat their employees with dignity and respect to pay them a decent wage and give them some real control over their lives. We know from the work at Zainab Tan at MIT that these firms are just as competitive as the firms they're uh, fighting against or competing with, that they are paying significantly better, that it's much more fun to work there and that there's no sign they're less productive or less creative or less innovative, rather the reverse. That deciding to do this can open the doors to a kind of creativity and commitment and productivity that many conventional firms just have no access to.
3: You talk about purpose-driven organizations and the question always arises whenever I talk about this to business people, can you be profitable and also endorse a a purpose other than profit?
2: So you know where I'm going to go with this. (laughs) I'm going to say, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Not that it's easy. Not that you can change your mission statement, snap your Mm. fingers, say I'm purpose-driven and you're done. Absolutely not. Being purpose-driven is hard. Adopting a goal beyond profits, saying, Not that we don't need profits, so we don't need to give a decent return to our investors, but that's not the point of the firm. The point of the firm is creating great jobs or developing a product that replaces conventional meat or showing the world that you can take, this is a real company, take a gigaton of carbon out of the atmosphere in 10 years because you're going to tune up the way people do their heating and ventilation. Having a greater purpose I think we have so many reasons to believe that you don't have to choose between that and competitive survival. You know, this is the subject of my scholarly research, so I'm tempted to shower you with research papers, but I will not. I will give you the bottom line. The bottom line is that when people think they're working for an authentically purpose-driven business, three amazing things happen. The first is a shared vision of where the firm is going, often a much broader vision, because instead of just focusing on profit, you're thinking much more widely about what's happening in the world and what we can do to help. And so you build firms where everyone's on the same page. And that's, believe me, a huge advantage. The second real source of advantage is people want to work in firms with meaning. It's not just the millennials and the Gen Z almost everyone would rather work in a job where they thought they were making a difference and they had some control over what they were doing. And that generates what's called, as I know you know, intrinsic motivation. I work because I'm doing work I believe in. I'm not just working for a paycheck. And, you know, we have many studies to suggest that, yes, of course, you need the paycheck. Don't get me wrong. Nobody can eat purpose alone. But if you have a decent paycheck, if you can then put purpose on top, Uh that really pushes people to go the extra mile. And the third and last, and this really comes from my work in innovation, is that it helps you generate deep levels of trust right through the organization. In so many conventional companies, people are managed on their weekly results or their monthly results or their daily results. People are managed as things to be controlled Mm. by numbers. Now, numbers are important. You need numbers to keep track of what's going on, but they're not great for controlling people because numbers never capture the full reality of what needs to happen. My favorite example in this is Nordstrom as its uh, employee handbook rule number one, use your best judgment in all situations. There will be no further (laughs) rules. I mean, that for me captures what a purpose-driven firm can be. And so if you can do that, if you can create the kind of trust that gives people the base the the permission to use their best judgment in all situations, I mean, I think the data is very clear on this. In every industry, the best performing firms are more than twice as productive as the least. They're the firms that have deep levels of communication, that focus on innovation, that um, make an enduring commitment to their employees. These are the purpose-driven firms. And um, I'm not saying they're going to make more money because being purpose-driven is expensive. You actually have to authentically mean it and pay people decently Mm. and invest in doing the right thing. So it's not the royal road to instant riches, but you can be purpose-driven and be more productive, creative, and innovative than contemporary firms and absolutely survive.
3: I'm convinced. (laughs)
2: And <laughs> you're an easy sell.
3: And what, the third pathway that you envision to reimagining capitalism is along these lines. You call it rewiring finance, so that environmental and social and government standards matter in investment. Could you tell us a little about that? Sure.
2: It's directly related to the earlier conversation we had around ESG. Oh. So why is it that investors are getting super excited about these metrics? I think there are two, three big reasons. The first is there's a lot of information in these metrics. If you're an investor and you've been combing the same old financial data year after year after year, suddenly having a whole bunch of new data about how the firm treats its employees, things like turnover rates, investments in training, um, data about how the firm is approaching environmental issues, that's useful tells you something about the capacity of the management team. Are they focusing on the long-term? So there's just raw information in the data. Second reason, I might be right about shared value and purpose, I really might. The world is changing and those firms that see it first, they're going to do better. So if you're an investor, you might want to be investing in those leading edge firms. You might want to be picking them up. These floods of new startups founded by these incredibly passionate people who want to change the world, some of them are going to be really big because we know we have to change. It's just a matter of time. So these are going to be huge new industries that um, if you're an investor, you'd like a piece of. Uh, One of my uh, good friends runs a private equity firm in Norway, which invests only in firms that are committed to addressing the sustainable development goals, that is, the big problems that we face. And he's seeing crazy rates of financial returns over the last couple of years because there's so much opportunity and the quality of the people going in is so great. And the third thing that may be going on, and I think it may be going on particularly at BlackRock, is if you have a long time horizon and a great deal of money, these so-called externalities are not external to you at all. If your primary fiduciary duty is to pensioners, for example, pensioners who are going to be drawing these returns 30 or 40 or 50 years from now, and if you have so much money that, like BlackRock, they own on average, you tell me, but it's between 5% or 6% of nearly every publicly traded firm on the, on the planet and a bunch of other stuff as well. If, if you're that big and you're looking that far in the future, the risk of climate change is not something you can dismiss. You can't say, oh, I'll just invest in firms that it won't hurt. Everybody is going to be hurt your whole portfolio is at risk. Similarly, if we look at what accelerating inequality and exclusion is doing to our politics, how toxic they're becoming, how kind of scary it's getting, that's a risk to the portfolio. That's a financial risk. So I think part of what is going on is the very big investors are saying, You know, for any single firm, maybe they don't have a case to invest in in forestalling climate change or increasing inclusion. But I do. I, in effect, own the whole world. I can't get away from these problems. And so I think that's a big part of what's going on with some of the major investors as
3: well. Your fourth point is is intriguing. You talk about building cooperation within an organization, that is, you know, make it so that everyone benefits, uh, seeing the corporation as a cooperative community. What does that mean?
2: Well, it could mean that I've drunk way too much Kool-Aid, <laughs> yeah. but, but let me try this, okay. And let me use an example. So some years ago, the head of sustainability for Unilever, a big European consumer goods company, came to the office to find a bunch of men and women dressed in gorilla suits climbing up and down on the facade of the building and unfurling banners saying, Dove destroying the rainforest. Well, Dove was one of Unilever's biggest and most profitable brands. This was not good. (laughs) And those people in gorilla suits were there. They were from Greenpeace because Unilever was buying palm oil. And palm oil is a major source of deforestation globally. And so they wanted Unilever to commit to buying sustainably grown palm oil. No problem. Except that sustainably grown palm oil cost at the time like 18 to 20% more than the other kind. Uh And you didn't want to tell consumers that there was palm oil in the product because, hey... It's kind of it's lipstick and it's soap and, and you don't want to tell them and, you, and they won't pay more. And so what do you do? Well, what Unilever did is go to every other major consumer goods company and say, look, it's not good for any of us to be cutting down Virgin Forest. It puts all of our brands at risk. It puts the long-term viability of our supply chains at risk. And uh, now they would say, and the investors are really, really uncomfortable about it. <laughs> and so what Unilever was able to do was to persuade nearly 70% of the world's buyers of globally traded palm oil to promise to buy only sustainably grown oil. And what that does is everybody's price goes up. So everybody's paying a little bit more for the palm oil. But if you can make the industry sustainable, then the whole industry benefits. So that's what cooperation could, in theory, do. And this actually happened in um, in Brazil with regard to the Amazon, where collective efforts by the big food companies working with people on the ground in the Amazon were able to um, reduce the amount of uh, unsustainably grown beef and soy and timber to almost zero and for a while halted deforestation in the Amazon. So it, it, it's kind of a crazy idea, but on the other hand, it's not crazy at all.
3: Your fifth point, which I don't think I quite understand, is rebuilding the government and institutions. Along what lines and how would you do it? And what does it mean?
2: Right at the beginning, when you asked me what I thought was wrong, I said I thought capitalism was unbalanced, that yeah. free markets need rules and referees. So to get a bit more formal about that, what I take away from the development economists and the political scientists is that to a first approximation, the societies that grow and thrive are those that we call inclusive societies, societies that have inclusive institutions. What does that mean? It means a free and fair democracy in which everyone can vote. It means a transparent and capable government, which can get things done, but is crystal clear about what they're doing and is democratically responsive. It means a strong civil society. So an independent judiciary, an indep- a free media that tells the truth, uh, some kind of voice for working mm-hmm. people so that they can sit at the table with business and government and make sure that their interests are looked out for as well. Um, and that's what, thriving, prosperous societies need. Uh, If you think over the last 20 to 25 years, the big thrust in development economics has been to try and get these kinds of institutions into so-called more rapidly developing or less developing countries. Because the alternative to inclusion is extraction. Um, We could call it crony capitalism, but it's a society in which all the wealth and all the power is controlled by a few people. Sometimes you see it on the right. You know, um, the Russian society is deeply extractive right now. Putin and his cronies own most of the economy and make most of the decisions. It can be more left-wing. Venezuela would be an obvious example right now. I don't know how you count the Chinese, but I think in many Mm -hmm. ways they are in danger of sliding into extraction where all the power is concentrated in a small space. And mostly extractive societies don't have free markets because the rich give the monopoly on the Toyota dealership to their nephews and they fix the rules in their own favor. And here's the thing. I think some of the developed world is in danger of losing its inclusivity. That we're seeing increasing polarization. We're seeing popularization, which you know, I understand where populism comes from. If the economy has not been working for me for 20 or 30 years, and I feel displaced, and I feel angry, and the ruling elite does nothing but look down their nose and snootily tell me what to do, I can understand why people might be really, really angry. But the decision that many people in that situation reach for, which is let's find one man. And so far it's always been a man. (laughs) Let's find one guy and he will embody the popular will and he will rule us and he'll tell us what to do. That impulse has historically always led to disaster. And so when I say business should help fix institutions, what I mean is that business should realize that inclusive institutions give you faster growth rates and healthier societies that business thrives much more under inclusion and that business has both a has a duty to step up and talk about the importance of the fundamental rules of an inclusive society and if i may i'd like to point to the ceos who stood up last week and said you know being able to vote is a fundamentally important right. And voting rules that discriminate against minority voters that are surgically designed to discourage minority voters from voting, that's not okay. And that's an example of exactly what I mean, which is business using its voice to say, not a political a political point, although business does that all the time, right? We'd like lower taxes, please. But to speak out in favor of the fundamental institutions that made us rich and free in
3: the first place. Rebecca Henderson, I hope you're right. I really do. And I want to thank you really genuinely for taking the time to join us on our podcast. Thank you.
2: Daniel, I am so honored to be here. Absolutely delighted to be talking to you. You've been one of my heroes for a long time. So thank you very, very much.
3: You know, Rebecca's spot on. Theoretically, the problem is practical applications because nobody is pricing coal uh, in terms of its externalities. That, that's Right now, that's a p- wonderful dream, but a pipe dream. Uh, if it happened, then I think it would change the economic playing field to favor uh, better fuels like solar and electricity. I'm waiting for that day to come.
1: So interesting, though, Dan, to think about that, because I think that some of the ways that the scales are being tipped into balance is um, in kind of a, a roundabout way, right? And I think distinctly about the purpose movement and the role of consumers and workers in starting to stand up and say we're not going to work for an organization um, that is showing poor ethical behavior that isn't sustainable anymore, right? And so, in this way, I think the externalities sort of come to take on a different feel, right? They they come in the form of lost talent. Um and lost customers, and I'm curious, you know, as someone who has been writing and thinking about the purpose movement, if you have anything to say about that?
3: Well, I, I think uh, Liz, what you're pointing to is that younger generations embrace a sense of purpose and meaning more than older generations, and that as they come into power in the workplace, uh, we're going to see real changes. And I'm, I'm optimistic about that actually. And perhaps they will force these so-called externalities, which by the way are not really that benign, uh, particularly in this case when it comes to climate impacts, uh, that they will force externalities to be openly accounted for to become transparent
1: yeah, it's interesting I, I think um, the younger generation has been the first to to sort of stand up and and demand something more and Um, I think there was a report put out by McKinsey recently that said the pandemic itself has caused about 70% of workers to reevaluate what they do for a living and start to think about um, or or even be in touch with their desire for more purpose and meaning in the workplace. And whether that means sustainability or not, it's not totally clear, but I do think that the purpose movement is starting to trickle through all generations now, which is hopeful.
0: The way that greed is built into the system. It is People's understanding of value uh, is a big part of it. And I think that comes into play here as well. When we are only valuing uh, capital gain, then that becomes a bigger priority than our actual material world. But the system is set up for this because uh, companies are created to build capital. It's what Shareholders expect it's what CEOs are hired and fired for, and so that is the actual incentive: is to accumulate wealth. And if that's the only value that we hold, and there's no guideline on it, um, we see what what happens. We have, you know, several what dozens of people with most of the wealth, and millions struggling.
3: Rebecca Henderson um, sees it and then I think the near future rather than distant future where companies will stop taking shareholder value as their only measure and think about stakeholder value. And one of the stakeholders, of course, is the planet. It's the community, it's workers, it's customers. And the question is, will they look at the welfare, well-being of that whole set of holders of stake or, or just keep counting uh, capital gains, as you point out, remains to be seen.
0: If you're interested in reimagining the world, you may be interested in Dan's book, A Force for Good, The Dalai Lama's Vision for Our World. In it, Dan articulates the Dalai Lama's practical advice for our own lives. He also highlights companies that are models of the Dalai Lama's vision. You can find a force for good at keystepmedia.com slash shop.
4: Thanks for listening to First Person Plural, EI and Beyond. Subscribe now and sign up for our newsletter to get notified as new episodes are released. This show is brought to you by our co hosts, Daniel Goleman, Hanuman Goleman, and Elizabeth Solomon, and is sponsored by Keystep Media, your source for personal and professional development materials focused on mindfulness, leadership, and emotional intelligence. Special thanks to Amita, whose voice you heard at the top of the show. And to today's guest, Rebecca Henderson. For guest bios, transcripts, and resources mentioned in today's episode, check out our episode notes on our website, firstpersonplural.com. This episode was written and produced by Elizabeth Solomon and me, Gabriela Acosta. Episode art and production support by Bryant Johnson Music in this episode includes Love Deep Sea by Frederick Lardin and theme music by Amber Ojeda. Until next time, be well.
0: If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate our show and submit a review. It helps us spread the word about the show. If you want to go the extra mile to support our show, you can become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can get exclusive access to extended interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Sign up at patreon.com
3: slash firstpersonplural.